in the dependent arising which I explained yesterday we see a, um, a circle a circular movement which begins with ignorance and ends with dukkha but it can because it's a circle begin anywhere and end anywhere this is just a traditional way of explaining it goes around in a circle again and again and at the end it says and this is how <coughs> dukkha arises but the Buddha gave a second explanation of dependent arising which goes in a straight line from dukkha to enlightenment and if we have an insight into the first one we can start out with practicing the second one now we will practice the second one if we can get an understanding of how our own dukkha arises and if we are really determined to get rid of it because the second one is called the transcendental dependent arising which means that we can transcend our dukkha and although it is told and taught in just exactly 12 steps again just like the first one it is quite a journey and it starts out with dukkha that's its starting point where the other one ends there's this one starts and that doesn't mean that we now have to have a lot of suffering in order to get started but what we do have to have is a direct understanding of dukkha otherwise we will continue to look in the wrong direction for our satisfaction and for our fulfillment <coughs> dukkha is also the first noble truth that the Buddha propounded after his enlightenment when he sat under the Bodhi tree he said that there is dukkha in existence now when we have dukkha when we have some sort of problem any kind of suffering we grab it and hold it on to ourselves and think it's ours and we think it's an individual monopoly nobody else got it it can't be as bad as ours and somebody else has it we keep forgetting that it's a universal factor of existence rather than an individual experience our individual experience does nothing but prove that it's universal because everything that we experience everything that we are is universal there is no personal individual that's experiencing all that that is only part of our delusion 
because we are deluded to believe like that, to think like that, we are concerned only with what happens to us ourselves or possibly a few people around us if they're near enough. But if we were to understand and see with our own eyes, we can see it, that there's nobody who doesn't have dukkha. All we have to do is just take a little more of a look, be a little more attentive, pay a little more attention to what goes on around us. From our own observation, we can see quite clearly that everybody has some suffering. It doesn't have to be tragedy. It doesn't have to be a great deal of grief. But there's always some dissatisfaction. The story of Kisa Gotomi illustrates this rather well. Kisa Gotomi was a woman alive at the time of the Buddha. And she had, after many years of waiting, finally had a child a small boy, and uh, he grew up very nicely. And he was the apple of her eye. So she was very happy now that she had this little boy. But when he was three years old, the little boy died, and she was inconsolable. She wouldn't allow him to be buried. She carried him around in her arm and went from doctor to doctor and uh, asked for some help for this dead child and she was actually going out of her mind because she wouldn't allow herself to believe that the child was dead and after at first people were very sorry for her uh, trying to help her in some way but uh, eventually they become disgusted with her because she wouldn't listen to any reason didn't want to pay any attention to her anymore well, finally, one person came along who also saw that, what she was doing, running around with this dead child in her arms, and said, look, said, I know where somebody that can give you a remedy for the child. So immediately she grasped at this straw of hope, and he took her to the Buddha. And she said to the Buddha that she had, this child was very sick, and uh, would he know a remedy? And he said, yes, he would give her a remedy. And so she was overjoyed. And he said she should go down to the nearest village and knock on the first door of a house and ask for a handful of mustard seed. And she was just about to run off and do that when he said, no, but you must first inquire whether anybody has died in that house. And if anybody has died in that house, you can't bring the mustard seed. You have to go to a house and get the mustard seed where nobody has died. So she said, all right. So she went down to the village and knocked on the door and asked for mustard seed and uh, asked whether anybody had died in the house and found out that the grandfather had died. So she went to the next house. And there the father had died, and another house, a child had died, and an aunt had died, and so on. And she came to the last house, and 
even there, somebody had died. She couldn't get the mustard seed. And by that time, she had understood what remedy the Buddha had given her. And so she went back and asked that the child be buried, and uh, she started practicing. She became a nun also, and the story says that she became enlightened. What the story tells us is nothing else except that dukkha is universal. Everybody's got it. But that's not enough even. It also tells us that to try to get away from it is foolishness. It's our very best teacher. There's nobody around that can teach us as well as Dukkha. It's the one where we eventually open our eyes to the reality of life rather than that what we have thought it should be like. Now, what we think it should be like is quite easily understood. We would like it to be pleasant all the time, under all circumstances, physically pleasant, mentally and emotionally pleasant. Has that ever worked? Quite out of the question, isn't it? Can't work. Just isn't arranged that way. Well, who arranged it so badly? (laughs) Must be something wrong with the arrangements. But that too is absurd. So there must be something wrong with the way we look at it. It's obviously not the arrangements. It's obviously not that we can't, can't have it that way. Those things are both absurd. So there's something wrong in our way of relating to the whole business of being alive particularly of how we relate to ourselves, what we think about ourselves. So if we get a a grip on that, find out that there's something, the way we look at it, that isn't quite right because nothing ever comes out exactly the way we thought it should be. We may have had some plan which was going to make us happy, and we actually get this plan organized and it works the way we thought it should. Well, are we going to stay happy all the time? Even that isn't possible. So what's going on here? The way we have to look at it is it's not that we have to suffer all the time, but what we need to look at is that nothing remains exactly the same. Everything is constantly moving. And because it's constantly moving, there cannot be total fulfillment in it because what was so wonderful one moment has already changed or if it hasn't changed, whatever it was, we have already changed. Now this enormous change that takes place is something that we try to overlook. We try to close our eyes to that because it's not so comfortable, we think. It doesn't fit into our way of seeing the world. Our whole idea of what it looks, the world looks like is a stationary one. 
people are like this. I am like this. And uh, my feelings are this. But if one takes a moment to investigate, can we keep any feelings? We can't, even if we wanted to. Sometimes we're very happy that we can't keep them because they're unpleasant. But other times we would rather keep them, but we can't either. They keep coming and going. What about thoughts? Can we keep them? We can't even remember them. No way we remember what we were thinking. And what about this body that's supposed to be me? I always um, like to um, suggest that when one gets home from the meditation course, to get out old photo album and maybe find a picture in there when one was two or three, four, five, six, seven, any age at all, or a whole bunch of those, and hold them in front of the mirror and stand next to it and look into the mirror, and then decide, which one am I? And if the decision is com- comes that, well, the one that's in standing there looking into the mirror, obviously that must be me. What happened to all those others? They're all dead now or what? Where are they? They've all disappeared. Because of continuity, we forget impermanence. It is overshadowed by continuity, but it's also overshadowed by our lack of attention. We don't pay enough attention. We're too busy paying attention to other things, which we think are going to bring us satisfaction. That they constantly fail to do so, we do not put down to our lack of attention to things as they really are. We put it down to the fact that we must have picked the wrong thing or the wrong person. So we'll try again. And as we keep trying, we expend our energy and uh, we're always looking for something which doesn't exist. We're looking for something that's going to keep us happy all the time. It's impossible. There is no such thing. And because we're expecting to find it, we're disappointed. And we're always looking for the future to make it better. But how much future has everybody got? Nobody knows. Very little in any case. Human lifespan is not very long, and some are particularly short. We have no idea. So what can the future do for us that the past has never done? So the moment, this moment, is the one to be investigated. And when we investigate one single moment, we will see that it's already passed. These digital clocks are particularly good to show that. <laughs> they're constantly moving. There's n- when they stop, of course, they're dead. They're finished. They've got to get a new battery or something. But as long as they're alive and well, they're constantly moving. Every single moment is gone. Can't be kept. Can't be held on to. And this is accurate. This is the way it is. But because this clock always looks the same, and because 10 o'clock in the morning comes around day after day, we forget all about it. 
But that 10 o'clock <clears throat> yesterday and 10 o'clock today and 10 o'clock tomorrow are totally different. We don't pay any attention to that. We think differently, we feel differently, and our body has already changed. We all know that all the cells in our body are renewed every seven years. When I heard that for the first time in school, I think it was about 12 years old, I was trying to figure out that what would happen when I was 14, because obviously that would have been the second time I was seven years. It was impossible to figure it out. But now we know that they're constantly falling apart and regenerating. So we can never be exactly the same. And that's why we look so different all the time. We look older. Well, we don't pay any attention to that. We're just sorry we do. Or we, we think, oh, that person isn't very nice telling us we look older or something like that. But the cells get put back together a little differently. The whole thing moves, changes. Now that our thoughts are constantly changing can be very easily recognized in the meditation can't hang on to it even though we don't want to hang on to it we couldn't by the moment the moment we've had one there's already another one and afterwards it's almost impossible to even remember any one of them there may be a hazy recollection of something so who is this person that is sitting amidst all that change. Now, this change has as its result that there's constant friction. Everything that moves has friction. Now, even our thought process has friction. Everything that has friction has irritation. This body constant friction, constant irritation. When we sit, we can feel little aches and pains here and there because we're sitting so still that they come to the forefront. In our daily living, we move. We move with the body, we move with the mind. We don't like to know about this friction, this irritation. But when we sit still in meditation, all that comes to our attention if we want to know about it. We only know what we put our attention on. If we really want to know what we're like, we can. And if we don't, we can keep on forgetting about it. It's all a matter of what we have in our consciousness. So this constant change, bringing friction and irritation, that is the underlying dukkha. We don't have to suffer at all. We don't have to have any kind of tragedy in our lives. We don't have to have anything terrible happen to us. It's this constant movement where we can never hang on to anything and say, that's it, I've found it. Now that is going to keep me continuously happy and peaceful. We can't do it because our emotions are also constantly moving. Now we can learn, of course, to have an inner, inner being, inner experience which keeps us 
at peace and happy, but not in the way that we were thinking it would do. It has to happen only through the inside that whatever happens to us all the time is constantly changing. So we have to learn equanimity about it. We cannot find this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Although we know that intellectually, in actuality, everybody's looking for it. We know very well it doesn't exist. Where can we say that it is? That's it. There's nothing that's solid enough to do it for us. Now, when we realize that that is the dukkha, then we get a better grip on it. We realize, yes, it's everywhere. And I cannot eliminate it through trying to find an outer condition which will make me happy. As long as we use our old and tried ways of getting away from dukkha, we're trying to cover up. The, um, the strongest cover-up is movement, getting away from. Now, in the, um, if we have an unpleasant feeling in the, in the sitting position, we move. Well, this is nothing but the usual way of dealing with dukkha. We change, we make changes. We're not satisfied. Something is wrong, we're not totally satisfied. So we want to change. We want to live somewhere else. We want to live with someone else. We want to uh, work somewhere else. We want to um, uh, meditate somewhere else. We want to have uh, some other friends. We want to have some other studies. Everything that we could move to, that movement is what we try to use to get away from. Of course, we also use blaming. Sometimes we blame ourselves and sometimes we blame others. Well, that doesn't change anything. It just makes it double dukkha. Sometimes we, we think that... Um, we feel sorry for ourselves, that things aren't working out. Sometimes we get angry about the dukkha. We feel it's uh, unjustified, it's unfair. Why should it happen to me? What have I done? That also happens frequently. None of that works. And none of it has any value because it doesn't show us a reality. The reality is that Dukkha exists. And it also, there's another reality to it, that Dukkha has only one cause, and that's wanting. Now, wanting includes also not wanting. And if we can give a moment's time to check that out, we'll see that if we don't want anything, then there can be no dissatisfaction. But that has to go further than just material things and people. 
It has, go, has to go to, to the root of our being. But that only comes eventually. It has to go far enough so that even being is not wanted. We have three cravings, major ones, the ones that, that are um, at the root of everything that we do. The first one is the craving for sensual gratification, in other words, to have pleasant feelings. And the second one is the craving to be, which is sometimes turned into the craving not to be when things go too wrong, which is the same, the other side of the same coin, makes no difference. So in essence, we have two. We want to be. We want to be someone. We want to even become someone someone else because the one we are is not satisfying to us so we want to become someone else a different person and uh, we want to remain like this we don't want to give up we want to give don't want to give up our individuality personality our me idea we don't want to give any of that up, which makes meditation so difficult. Now, that's our, the two cravings that we have, and they are the reasons for any kind of dissatisfaction which can arise. That's the first and second noble truth of the Buddha's teaching, and we are constantly proving them in our own lives. First noble truth that there is unsatisfactoriness, non-fulfillment, and the second one that it only has one cause, wanting or not wanting, craving. If we can check that out with a small and very minor thing, we will see that if there's something we want and we are disturbed by it because we haven't got it yet, and we drop the wanting, the whole disturbance goes away. Now, sometimes we might have to talk ourselves into it because our cravings and wantings are very strong. We have to talk ourselves into it that it isn't very important, that it's all going to change or some sort of talk to ourselves. But the minute we're able to let go, the whole disturbance is gone. And then, of course, we find something else until we can realize the first two noble truths in ourselves, we haven't seen Dukkha. One time I had a group of teenagers on my nun's island for a meditation course, and I was trying to illustrate Dukkha to them, and I, I said to them, I want them to make an experiment to think about anything that at this particular moment was making them unhappy and whether that was connected with wanting anything and then to drop that wanting and to see whether the unhappiness went away and the next day I asked them whether they had made the experiment and one of the girls 
said yes, she had made an experiment. And I asked her what it was. She said, well, all the time she'd been on the island, she had been coveting this little cushion here with a tassel. She'd like to get one like that. And she'd been trying to figure out how to get it or how to make it and where one could get a thing like that. And it's been disturbing her. And when I told her about Dukkha, she dropped the whole idea and everything was fine again. Now, this is a very minor thing, and this was a very young girl. But we have minor things like that and bigger ones. And it is amazing how often even the minor things are disturbing us. Somebody who doesn't come at the time they're supposed to come. Somebody who doesn't do what they promised. Uh, the bank that makes a mistake. The post office that doesn't deliver. Uh, the neighbor that turns on the radio so loud. All these minor things that disturb one's life. As soon as we don't want them any more different, we are rid of the dukkha. But this goes into the biggest things because we don't want impermanence. We don't want things to change. We don't want people to change. We don't want to lose what we love. We don't want people to do certain things which they, we, which they do and we don't like. We are constantly trying to impose upon the outer world around us our ideas the way it should be. Now, if that isn't Dukkha, I don't know what is. <laughs> and with those, even if we don't even say it, if we just think it, it's already lots of dukkha. But if we come to the understanding one day that things are as they are, people are as they are, life is as, is as it is, it's constantly changing and flowing, there's nothing to be done about it except to try and understand it and to let go of the attachment and the craving, then we will see that dukkha is diminished. It disappears only when there's no more the craving for being. Now, that's a long way to go um, on this path, long in a, in a manner of speaking, not necessarily in time, but in insight. It's not necessarily that one has a long, one needs a long time to gain that insight, but there's a lot of insight to be gained. <laughs> However, even a little bit of it shows us already what we're doing wrong, how our approach is wrong, how we cannot gain the satisfactions that we want by opposing things the way they are. We can let go of this opposition. Our strongest opposition is to let go of our ego delusion. And that opposition is our greatest problem. Because if we were to let go of that right now without having gained sufficient insight in what's going on and without having gained sufficient peace and calm to handle that insight, we would stand bereft. What else is there? Who am I trying to so for so hard? Why am I meditating and trying to um, come get some peace and calm if I don't, I'm not even here? 
if we try to see that more clearly before we have taken other steps, that will not do any any good to us because it will just be um, not it will not only be confusion, it will show itself as um, a fearful situation because our ego is so to say our foundation on which we rest at this time. It's me who wants to meditate. It's me who wants to become peaceful. It's me who wants to become loving. Who else? Well, I hope you also do it, but I am the one that wants to do it, and so forth. So there is no way of taking that away at this time. But our approach to the situation has to be that we get more completely aware of what this ego really is, what this me really is, so that eventually we find a way of letting go. If I would like to give this little clock away, I have to have it fully in hand in order to give it away. If it's hidden here somewhere and I can't quite find it, I can't give it away. So the first step is to gain insight into the unsatisfactoriness of one's approach to the um, to one's desires for happiness. Gain more insight into oneself so that one can see where the difficulties lie. What is it that keeps me from being happy and peaceful all the time? And if we pay more attention to this constant change, to this impossibility of keeping anything steady, the impossibility of having anything static, everything has to move, we will also no longer have the idea that this person is quite as solid as it appears to be. The solidity covers over this movement and transparency. The solidity which we touch is nothing but an earth element, which is also constantly changing. But our illusion of it, our optical illusion that we are somebody, can be broken down if we take pay more attention to all the changes which have already taken place in our life. Just the physical changes. If we just pay attention to that, we just take a look from birth to now and then decide if this one is me and the others aren't all dead, then I must have been already a thousand me's or maybe more than that even. And if there are so many, which one am I trying to make happy? And if I'm the pleasant feelings, if I'm really those, then who owns the unpleasant ones? And if there's somebody owning the pleasant ones, and if that's really me, 
why am I then having the unpleasant ones? Who is this person that's getting all that mixed up, who really would like only pleasant ones and gets unpleasant ones? This inquiry, and there are other ways also which I will mention at another time of inquiring into who this me is, will break down the original belief in the solidity of this person. And if we break that down a little, just a little, then what we experience doesn't become tragic or um, very um, uh, grief-producing, but it becomes a new teacher. Every time we experience something, it's another teaching that teaches us about the unsatisfactoriness, the movement, the non-solidity. Having seen dukkha as a universal aspect makes all the dukkha that we experience far less important. It doesn't have the sting. It doesn't belong to me. It's part of the whole experience of being alive. And the whole experience of being alive is only in this one moment. What, was on, what went on before is in our memory. What's going to go on later is in our hopes. But the experience of life is in this moment. And the experience can be anything at all. It is never just our own. The Buddha said, the whole of the universe lies in this mind and body. When we realize and understand this mind and body fully, then we understand the whole of the universe. Because this mind and body is part of the universe. And it cannot be any different. Because it's all a manifestation. It's a manifestation which exists and so is this. If this is understood, the universe is understood. To understand dukkha means one gains insight. It means that one contemplates. It doesn't just happen when one meditates. The experiences we have have to be understood. Now, the experiences we have in daily life or also in meditation, it doesn't matter. If they are pleasant, we usually appreciate them. And if they are unpleasant, we'd like to get away from them. But that's no way to gain insight. The way to gain insight is to use every experience and to see quite as an objective observer, what is this experience telling me? Now that makes life quite interesting without having to go outside of oneself to find interesting things to do but it also makes it um, gives it a, a feeling of um, 
fullness because everything that happens has an indication for us how to look at it in a different way. We have to learn to look at things in a different way. The experiences, for instance, in the meditation, the uh, unpleasant feeling in the body when one sits. It's no detriment. It's a learning situation. The breath, it's impermanence of the breath. What an important aspect of ourselves. If it wasn't impermanent, we'd be dead. So as long as we're alive, it's got to keep coming and going. But because there's always a next one, there's continuity, we forget the impermanence. It has to be coming and going. Otherwise, we can't breathe. The same with the heart, with the blood, with the cells, with the thoughts, with the feelings. Everything has to keep coming and going. So if we watch, for instance, the impermanence of the breath, we can infer from that that this person, which appears to be so solid, is nothing but movement. Even though we may not feel it, but we can already infer from that. And that gives us an insight into why the Buddha said existence is dukkha. Now he also said that the human life is the best situation to become enlightened because we have enough sukha, enough uh, pleasures, not to become totally depressed by all this dukkha. And we have enough dukkha to come and meditate. (laughs) So with the two in a balance, we can investigate. If we had more dukkha, we wouldn't even be able to sit down and meditate. Because for meditation to succeed, we need inner joy. And in this transcendental dependent arising the inner joy is the next step transcendental dependent arising means that there's always cause and effect so the cause here is not only that we have dukkha but that we've understood some of it that we have really gained some insight into it and then hearing reading or meeting up with a spiritual teaching, a spiritual path that promises to get one out of this dukkha, even though one can't prove it just yet, that arouses great joy. And that joy will then be a factor for the um, ability to meditate. Now this joy can only arise out of a trust, a confidence that one has heard the truth. Understanding that one has heard the truth needs the mind, the understanding mind. But if the understanding mind does not open the heart, we're again only 
half-heartedly involved. To be half-heartedly involved will bring, of course, half-hearted results. But to be wholeheartedly involved, that can bring very great results. There is nothing else in us except mind and heart, and of course the body. But the understanding that we gain, because we can understand the teaching, must arouse love for it. If it doesn't do that, we won't be able to really practice properly. If we have a relationship without love, it doesn't work. If we have a relationship without understanding, it doesn't work either. They have to be both present. This is the very closest relationship we can have, the spiritual path. The spiritual path does not mean that we practice in a, in a situation as, as such as this, where we have a retreat. It doesn't mean that we have to go off to Asia. It doesn't mean that we have to sit in a cave. The spiritual path means that we remember what is most important for us and remember it every moment in our daily lives. That we see situations in the light of... Now the devotion which comes from confidence, from trust, is the opening of the heart. And it is not a devotion to a particular person. That's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught like this, he said... Who sees me, sees the Dhamma. Who sees the Dhamma, sees me. He didn't want the devotion to him as a person, and certainly not to any person coming after him. He wanted the devotion to the Dhamma, to the teaching. And Buddha is not a name, it means the enlightened one. So he said, if you see the Dhamma within your heart, you already see the enlightened one, because that is what the Dhamma in the heart is. So when we, when we have that feeling and understanding that here is something that gives the, gives a direction, a pathway for our lives to become that what we thought they could, but in a totally different approach, then the love for practice needs to arise. And again, love for practice does not just mean sitting with crossed legs on a little pillow. Practicing a spiritual path is a commitment in daily life. It means that we realize what dukkha is in us and others, and that we do not become upset and angry about it, but use it as a learning situation. It means that we practice the purification of the heart through expanding our loving-kindness. It means that we use whatever situation we're in to learn from it about ourselves. And when we see that in ourselves, that we can do that, then again more confidence arises. 
even not being able to prove ourselves that the Buddha's teachings are all true because we haven't experienced it yet, we can definitely prove the first and second noble truths in ourselves that wanting brings dukkha. There's a story of a man who once came running to the Buddha sobbing, crying, totally um, under the uh, in grief and uh, painful feelings and uh, could hardly speak and so finally the Buddha uh, having asked him why he's crying the man was able to say my only son just died and the Buddha said what one loves brings sorrow and the man said what nonsense how can the Buddha say such a thing and walked off we would be inclined to say the same thing because we keep forgetting that attachment, wanting to keep, brings sorrow. doesn't mean that we don't love, but we learn to love without the attachment. This means that we keep the spiritual path in mind in our daily living. The joy which arises from the understanding of the teaching and one's devotion and commitment to it, one's love for it, one's trust in it, is the necessary inner experience to make the meditation successful. When one sits down, now I've been saying to uh, give oneself some loving kindness when we sit down, but we should also feel a feeling of gratitude that we have this opportunity to sit and meditate, a feeling of joyfulness that we are doing that which is of the greatest importance for every human life. Now, all these deliberately aroused feelings will help one to meditate in the way where meditation brings the kind of result that everybody has been dreaming about or thinking about, but it doesn't just happen. But there's certainly these these feelings are necessary. If we sit down in order to solve our own personal problems, we cannot hope to get peace and happiness. We have to let go. That means the second noble truth, not wanting not wanting to solve problems. Because when we have practiced enough, all problems solve themselves. We don't have to go around solving problems at all. All we have to do is practice. And we have to practice in a way which goes against the grain. It goes against self-affirmation. It goes against having and getting It's always a letting go. So if we want to practice meditation within the context of a spiritual life, our first step is to realize what creates the dukkha within, what creates any kind of anxiety, dissatisfaction, the niggling feeling of not being totally fulfilled. And then, 
be grateful, be really, truly devoted to a path which can take one out of this. The Buddha said, there's only one thing I teach, and that's suffering and its end to reach. The end does not mean that the world will no longer suffer. It doesn't mean that suffering has been eliminated. It just means the ego illusion has been eliminated. And when that happens, when there's nobody there, there's nobody to suffer. And that doesn't mean death. It just means that one has seen the truth about oneself. As you know, even in the Buddha's lifetime, suffering went on just as before. It never stops. There's always war and famine and drought. There's always loved ones dying or walking away. There's always physical pain, physical discomfort. There's always not getting what one wants or getting what one doesn't want. It's always around the corner. And because we know it's always around the corner, we're also anxious. Because right now, maybe it isn't happening, but what about tomorrow? How am I going to ensure myself that it may not happen? That's why the insurance companies have the biggest houses. (laughs) Well, we can't buy that insurance. It's impossible. None of this that a human being really wants is for sale. What a human being really wants can only be cultivated, developed, and aroused within oneself. We have it all within. We just need to let go of some of the preconceived notions of what we are and what we want and turn ourselves a little differently in a different different direction. It sometimes reminds me of the pictures that children play with where there's a head of a cow hidden in a tree or a, a, a farmer upside down in a corner. Now you see it, now you don't. The pictures that we see seems to be complete of the world and of ourselves. And yet, there's something missing. And sometimes we see, when we step on the spiritual path, we see clearer and clearer constantly. And the joy which comes from gratitude, the joy which comes from also contentment with who we are, what we're doing, and where we are, that contentment, that gratitude, the love for what one does, that brings the great results in meditation. The results where the mind can actually change its level of consciousness. So the first two steps on the transcendental depend arising is understanding dukkha and gaining the joy that arises when we have confidence. Confidence in what we have heard. Then we have a really strong practice that can help us to go all the way. I'll give you time now to ask some questions.
say, um, said about being content with who we are, where we are, and what we're doing. And yet, it seems to me that the further one goes along the spiritual path, especially with the eightfold path, you get more in touch with right livelihood and the other factors there, that it seems natural, at least to me, to change what one's doing and where one's doing it, perhaps, and certainly who one is is always changing mm. in life with what one's learning, rather than saying, well, this is where I am, this is what I'm doing, I'm going to tough it up because this is where I, I am. What you're saying sounds like being self-satisfied. That's not the idea, not being self-satisfied. But when you sit on that pillow, to be really happy to be sitting there and to be really grateful for the opportunity and to really love to do the meditation. That will help the meditative path. Now, that is that moment. Now, if you're changing, you have another moment. There's another moment. Then you are changed and you are again contented with that. Not self-satisfaction, not saying I'm okay and I'm all right this way and I'm going to you know, stay that way. But unless one sits on the pillow with being contented with oneself, the meditation will not happen. It will always be a struggle. And meditation should never be a struggle. I'm referring more to when we're out in the world. Oh, in, out in the world, yes. The places that we live, the work that we do, the things we do with our lives. It seems like that those things naturally are going to be changing. Certainly. While we, the more we learn, we're, we're going to decide mm. in a different environment, which is more conducive to where we want to go in life. Well, that particular change does not have to entail that you're discontented within, in every moment. The change can be made out of wisdom, but not out of discontent. Discontent is um, an, a feeling of, well, it has a feeling of non-love for oneself in it. So it's very important that specifically, I was really specifically um, referring to meditation, um, that it's very important at the beginning of meditation to have that feeling of um, being very happy about meditating and uh, very contented with oneself and not always thinking about all the wrong things that, that one has done or could be doing or has done. It's not important at that time. But surely as the inner person changes, the outer things change with it, but out of wisdom. Okay, what else? No, no questions. What's happened? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Joy meditating, I'm just trying to sit up on my pillow without falling on my liver. Um, is that time to quit? And I mean, and actually go rest? Mm. It's usually the tiredness which arises in meditation is usually, well, it's always not connected with the tiredness of the body. It's got nothing to do with the body. It is that the mind, when you close your eyes, 
and don't talk and try not to think, the mind recognizes that as a time to go to sleep. <laughs> that it's, it's its only reference point. It has no other reference points. And these other reference points only arise with prolonged meditation practice. So the mind says, ah, must be sleeping time, so I'll go to sleep. And uh, the thing to do at that time is when you realize this is happening, is to open your eyes immediately, look at the light, move the body, uh, even stand up and uh, just stay up, stand up for a few moments. Um, Pull your earlobes, rub your cheeks, and give yourself a pep talk. This is a very, this is called the third hindrance, sloth and torpor. And it's very common. It's nothing individual about it. And these instructions that I just repeated were given by the Buddha to Mahamogalana, who was his left-hand disciple, one of the great disciples. So even he had that difficulty. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And for me, it's a very uh, tricky, uh, very tricky question. So for example, if I drop the idea of wanting more peace, then I'm also going to leave this place. Mm. And I know also that the idea of wanting, wanting to get something out of this meditation practice, is also very much on the way to practice. It's also very much on what? On the way to practice. Uh huh. Okay. Yes. Well, we call that that when we start on the spiritual path, that we are, uh, what we do is we're wanting to get rid of wanting. So in order to get on the spiritual path, you've got to want to get on the spiritual path. But it's a wanting to get rid of wanting. So it's the only wanting which is worthwhile, worthwhile having. <laughs> hmm? You you are able to stay on the meditation subject. Yes, uh, but you're not enjoying it. No, no. Well, if you if you were really staying on it for the whole time, you couldn't help but enjoy it eventually. It wouldn't be you wouldn't have any choices. <laughs> when when the mind becomes concentrated, it has no choice except enjoy itself. So. Um, uh, I don't say that you are supposed to enjoy the meditation. What I said was that you sit down with that in mind, that this is a very, um, an occasion for you to be grateful for, that you are happy that you can be here, that you are happy to be able to sit down and do the meditation, that you are um, uh, have a, a love for the spiritual life, all these things. And then you put your attention on the breath with all that having gone before. 
instead of the mind rummaging around, should I sit this way or should I sit that way? And should I have gone to this teacher or that teacher? Or should I do that at home too or should I not do it at home? All these things are totally irrelevant. The mind will never meditate. So instead of that, you put all that into the mind and then do your meditation. You can't sit there and think about those things and try to meditate at the same time. Yeah. So you first do that and then start putting the attention on the breath. These are all ways and means of helping the mind to become concentrated. We don't have to accept our mind the way it is. We can change it. And we are constantly doing so. But we can change it into a useful direction. So the dropping that you need to learn in the meditation practice is a dropping of uh, discursive thinking of thoughts. That's all that one needs to drop there. That's plenty. And how do you drop the idea of not wanting? How do you drop the idea of not wanting? Huh? That didn't make sense. Say that. How do you drop the idea of wanting? You can't do that. You can't drop the idea of not wanting. Yes, that's right. <laughs> How do you drop the idea of wanting? Well, it depends what you want. If you want to get rid of wanting, that's okay. <laughs> what, do you, what do you want to drop? What wanting do you want to drop? Yes, drop the idea of wanting. Yeah, which one? Yeah, that's okay. That's, that's, that leads in the direction, that leads in the direction of not wanting. Because you can only have peace if you don't want anything. <coughs> you couldn't possibly have peace if you want something. So that goes in the right direction. Wanting peace goes in the right direction. And wanting happiness. You see, that is a, that is a, the, the, uh, the, um, the wanting that one has when there isn't any peace. But wanting other things in order to get that peace, that happiness, that goes in the wrong direction. As long as one wants to practice, that's the right direction. So that's wanting to get rid of wanting. Do you understand that? Wanting to get rid of wanting? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yes. Hmm? Yes. Until you're enlightened, you'll have it. <laughs> yes. I 
keep it outside of the retreat experience. I mean, my life, you know, concerns and so forth. I mean, this involvement drew me away from sitting constantly. And, and um, I found that, you know, I know that it's a wanting and attachment to that concentration. And I think the attachment to the concentration is is a good motivation, but it's a catch-22 because it's been very painful to continue to sit um, feeling a lot of pain in the sitting and not feeling joy. You know, it's a very confused state anywhere right now. And that's what it sounds here, like. Well, but you see, it's much better than wanting chocolate ice cream, sex, beer, uh, <laughs> movies, television. If you've got a choice, want the right thing. Huh? Make the choices right. But is, is there some way of, I mean, this is probably a common experience to have a lot of concentration and then not have it. Mm-hmm. You'll have to give yourself more time to sit. And you have to also know where that calmness leads to. Do you know where the calm that you get in the meditation leads to? You have to have you have to have a path that leads you. You know you know what you you have to know you have to really understand the experience and then you have to give yourself the time to do it. However, uh, most people that live uh, an ordinary life uh, find that what they have gained in the meditation course can just barely be kept alive and usually not. The, um, I say the minimum of trying to keep it alive is two hours a day of meditation, when even that is sometimes not sufficient. But that's a minimum without having being able to to gain any more to go ahead with it but uh, this is a progressive path and uh, the meditation path there's progressive stages in it and one also needs to know exactly what stage that is and where where it leads to and what the insight is arising from it i see insights are irreversible once you've had them you have them calm is constantly reversible If you don't sit, you haven't got it. And if you don't sit for a few weeks, you've got to start all over again. It's got to be done continually. The thing is, it's like yoga exercises. If you do yoga exercise every day, you stretch your um, tendons, you stretch your muscles, and eventually you can, you know, reach the toes or whatever you're trying to do. If you stop, it all shrinks up again. You've got to start all over again. Same with the mind. The mind shrinks back to its usual state. The, the calm state the, um, uh, is a different level of consciousness. It's an expanded state. And you have to know, first of all, you have to know, they understand it, keep and keep doing it. But insights will remain. Those you don't have to, those you have to do over again. You just can't get any more if you don't go on with it.
So it's a matter of practicing. And it's also a matter of understanding what is it, what is it better to be attached to. Where lies peace and happiness? That's important also. Okay, anything else? Yes. Um, mind in the Buddha's terminology consists of four parts feeling, perception, mental formations and sense consciousness now when we have no practice or little practice we are still, con- we are still very much aware of those four parts now in the English language we use feeling as heart a heart uh, quality but in the Buddha's language it is part of mind and um, perception is the nema the one that's based on memory to a great extent and says what something is it says that this is a clock because we know that this is a clock if you show that to a two year old you might think it's a piece of chocolate or building block it's very much based on memory it names the things and uh, mental formations is the is our thought process, which is very often in reaction to the feeling, or in reaction to an idea. And sense consciousness is what starts it all: seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, and smelling, and also our ideas. So now we are very much aware of all those things. When we are able to concentrate, then we have a chance to get in touch with a mind state which does not have any of those other things in it except the feeling. And in that state, we touch upon a purity of mind which is, um, transcends our duality thinking. So that's, uh, we could say that this is what the Buddha called the gold original mind. Uh, universal mind? No, universal consciousness, not universal mind. I don't use that term at all. It's a universal consciousness, which can also be experienced in meditation. We'll come to that later. <laughs> that is on the, in the dependent arising, and that's, that's a few steps later. <laughs> and ego is our, is our belief. See, within that, within those four parts of mind, there's nothing that's called ego. Ego is a belief. And because it's a belief system, and uh, it doesn't really have reality to it, it needs to have support all the time. Somebody uh, diminishes our ego or doesn't support it, we feel bereft. We need a constant support system for ego. Oh, all of this is connected to ego, which is what I said earlier was that first you have to have this fully in hand, the I, before you can get rid of it. 
So first you have to sort of change its um, direction and understand all its um, machinations, all how it works, what it happens to it, why it's always there, what brings its dukkha and so forth, and get that understanding and also change it from a worldly um, achievement syndrome uh, to a letting go and having a spiritual path. So that's all the I doing all that. That's all me. But when the me gets shaken a bit from more insight, then we get onto a different track a little bit. But first we've got to use that, what we've got, in order to gain a different direction. Could you um, talk about the differences between indifference and equanimity? Because I'm finding, like, when I get to a bit of calm in the, in the storm these couple of days, that I like it either way, and I'm not certain I can tell the difference at the moment of perceiving when it's just indifference and which is not really caring, and mm. when it's equanimity, that's certainly mm. you're caring. Right now I can't see the difference. I know, I know it's there. Uh, let me talk about that tonight. I had that in mind anyway, okay? Uh, because these are if one of the four um, Brahma Viharas, one of the four supreme emotions, and uh, I was talking last night, I was talking about loving kindness. So I was thinking of talking about the others tonight. Okay? Then I'll explain in detail. And if it doesn't, hasn't explained everything, you can ask then. Okay? Okay. What else? Anything else? Yeah. And I noticed that I started getting really sleepy immediately. No, I don't. Mm. Oh well, if it uh, if it has that effect on you, um, <laughs> it probably has a calming effect. But the calming effect and the sleepy effect cannot be distinguished too much. <laughs> then it's better not to use that. You see, when the mind gets sleepy in meditation one should get away from uh, trying to gain calm and get to insight. Namely, when we try to keep the mind on the breath and become concentrated, that's a way to calm. No thinking. Then the mind eventually can go into a level, different level of consciousness. Okay? But when the mind is sleepy, that's useless. Because although the calm has arisen, it cannot distinguish between calm and sleepiness, and it will have no usefulness at all. So at that time, we look at the breath and its uh, constant, its impermanence, its constant change, how it arises and ceases. And then maybe even we can see, when the mind becomes more concentrated, we can see the ceasing, how it is dissolving, the dissolution. And uh, we can also infer from that that this breath which keeps us alive, which has to be so impermanent, we may even look and see whether there's anything more permanent to be found. So at that time, it's much better to use the mind for an insight, on an insight track, rather than on the calm. So if that happens, immediately when, it, when you feel, now I'm calm but I'm falling, getting sleepy, change to seeing the impermanence might be quite useful because 
Um, you may have gotten a little bit calm first huh, before you get sleepy. So then go to the inside. And that is valid for everyone. When one gets sleepy, don't try to become calm. Try to get inside. The mind can. The mind that isn't used to a great deal of calm in meditation cannot very well distinguish whether it's supposed to fall asleep or whether it's supposed to become really concentrated. And that is a. It's, it's a difficulty. Only after some time it sorts itself out. So use insight. Anything else? Yes. No, we see the mind at this time when has become a little bit calm, right? So as you see this arising and ceasing of the breath, I mean this coming and going, this constant coming and going, then the mind can infer from that that the breath must not be steady in order to keep us alive. It doesn't even need a question. It just, it is a very strong um, knowing in other words, direct the mind towards that knowing. That's it. Questions is more a contemplation or problem solving. That's also done with questions usefully. <laughs>